According to George Bernard Shaw, there are two sources of unhappiness in life. One is not getting what you want, and the other is getting it. And Advent is a season that reminds us that there is something greater than what we want. And that the greatest thing is something we don't even know to want it. It is that thing that ought to direct our lives. It is that thing for which our souls really yearn, though we do not know it. And it's described in the Bible with one word, and that is glory. Glory. Although the world is shot through with glory, and we get glimpses from time to time, the big catch, the birth of a child, closing a deal... She says yes, Uh, yet our lives are oftentimes devoid of an experience of glory. We miss it. We just don't notice it. And so the writer of the book of or the letter of Hebrews says to his audience, pay attention, pay attention. It's a kind of a watchfulness he calls us to in the letter of Hebrews. And that is our text this morning. So I would invite you to open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2 on page 971 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, our text is really the whole chapter, but um, let's just read a part of that. Let's stand together and read verses 5 through 10, the middle section of uh, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 verses 5 through 10. Uh, And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it. You can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Now, God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. But someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now, in subjecting all things to to, to God, uh, excuse me, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This is the word of the Lord. The grass fades and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. We get in the heart of this chapter a vision of our destiny, and it's a a vision of glory. That's our destiny. And yet it's easy to miss. We're not really sure what glory is, are we? And yet, its fingerprints are all over the Christmas season. We have a sense that it has something to do with brilliant light and something to do with trumpets sounding and crisp, loud, celebratory music 
Glory is about victory and triumph. When we see glory, when we get a glimpse of it, it's as though there's been a rift in the time-space continuum and we can look through the way things are to the way things really should be. Glory is a property of life when it is as God intends it to be. It's a glimpse through the veil of tears that so often covers our eyes. Glory. It's easy to miss. It's easy to miss so that in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, the writer, letter of the Hebrews says, Therefore, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. He uses a nautical image here, drifting away from it, which is interesting. He'll do that again later in chapter 6 where he speaks of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ as an anchor. But here, it's as a a group of seafarers are on the open waters, perhaps even at night, and they're far from land approaching harbor. They're looking for their destination, and they're pushed about by currents and winds, and at risk of drifting past the harbor, losing track of where they're going. You may remember the movie City Slickers. You may not. Back before the turn of the century, I realize. Um, Billy Crystal is in this movie, and he plays a character of Mitch, you know, and there are a bunch of guys that are sent, uh, at least by Mitch's wife, on a, a dude adventure, I think, to Montana, you know, to, uh, for two weeks of cattle driving. And uh, so Mitch finds himself next to a real cowboy named Curly, and uh, these guys are looking for an adventure because they have a sense that maybe they've lost the path of life, that maybe they have drifted off of its course in midlife. Am I still tracking with my ambitions? Am I still realizing the destiny of my life, which has been moving me forward all these years? And so Curley looks at him and he goes, how old are you? 38? 39? Mitch answers, yeah, you all come out here about the same age, same problems, spend 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, then you think two weeks up here will untie time for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that, and everything else don't mean stuff. (laughs) And then Mitch says, well, that's great, but what's that one thing? That's what you've got to figure out. They go, well, the movie only takes us so far. Um, Hopefully the Bible takes us a little bit farther. But isn't that right that each of us has to find out what is that one thing? That drives our life forward? What's the one thing that gets you out of bed? That allows you to slog through uh, yet another day? We uh, can lose track. We can lose the course. And the, the, the person who writes this letter, we don't know a lot about who writes the letter of Hebrews. But we pick up clues 
that he's writing to a congregation, probably a house church, not more than a dozen or two believers, most likely in Italy, in Rome or nearby. And and he probably writes in the early 60s, 80s, 60s, 63, 64, mid-60s. This is the second generation of the early church, the church at midlife, the church that has come to that point where it begins to raise questions. You know, I've been doing this for a while. I've been at it for a long time. But but I wonder, this isn't the life that I thought I would be leading at this age. Uh, Things seem different. They've changed so very much. Or things have not really changed all that much at all. And I wonder that they haven't changed enough in my life. Drifting. What is the one thing? What is the course that leads us forward? And he says to them, pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Through the skulls, And the doldrums of life through the shifting currents, the winds, and the doldrums. Are we on course? This writer describes the letter as a word of exhortation, which is a phrase that would be used to describe a sermon or a message in the synagogue. And so it's an encouragement. It's kind of a written sermon to a group of people to pay attention. That's the one imperative in the text. Verse 1, we must pay attention. But through the rest of the chapter, there are really three sections in which the writer describes for us three attitudes of attention, three dispositions of watchfulness. And they're particularly Christian. They're Christian disciplines. And they're also particularly apt at Advent. So I'd like to talk with them, uh, talk to you about them. And the first one is this. It's hark. Uh, the three, I'll just tell you the three dispositions are hark, pine, and behold, but we begin with Hark because he does. He says, therefore, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard. And to Hark is to is to listen, is to pay attention to what we've heard. And now you ask the question, well, what have we heard? That's where my mind immediately goes. Well, if I'm supposed to pay attention to it, what is it that we've heard? And I, my mind goes backwards through Hebrews chapter 1, and I realize there's not a lot said here about what we've heard. The emphasis seems to be on the excellence of the messenger. God has spoken many times in the past through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us through a son, Jesus Christ. Yes, but what is he saying? What is that message that we must pay attention to? Well, I think the reason... He pays. Uh, he, he doesn't describe the content of the message. Is that it is so well known, so well known to his audience. The message is described uh, so often in the New Testament as the gospel, the good news, and, and he knows that they have heard the good news and they know the content of the message. And we have heard the good news for the most part. We know the content of the message. But what we must pay attention to in particular is not the content of the message. It's the nature of the message. Good news. And I've told you this before, but it bears repeating in the context of this text that the word gospel comes from the news media. It's the the domain of the ancient news media. For us, news comes through a, a newspaper or a website or a radio or television broadcast. But in the ancient world, news came through a herald. Nothing dropped at your door, nothing that you boot up, but you can open your door and hear the voice 
of a herald running through the streets announcing or proclaiming good news. It was particularly important to hear good news at time of war when the king had taken his forces out into the field of battle and you'd be left behind in the city in great anxiety. How will the day end? And the king, when it goes well, will dispatch a herald back to the city to announce good news. The king has won. The city is free. We're okay. That's the nature of the gospel. But the problem is so many of us think that the heart of Christianity is not good news, but good advice. You ask ten people what the essence of Christianity is, and at least nine of them will tell you, well, it's going to church and reading the Bible, upholding the golden rule. And those are all good things. But those are not the heart of Christianity. That's good advice. See, the difference between good news and good advice is the difference in who is doing it. Good news is about something that's been done by somebody else for you. Good advice is something you need to do and follow. And the reason I think our attention gets confused or lost, broken with respect to the nature of the gospel is this. that we, Wherever the gospel had spread, lives have been transformed. Wherever this good news has been told, people's lives have been changed. It's really affected the way that people have lived their lives. It's affected the way that we have lived our lives. Over time, though, our attention then shifts from the news itself to the effect in the life. And we pretty soon begin to think it's all about the life that we live. Forgetting that, no, it's really all about the news that we hear. Hark. Hark. Listen to what you have heard. He'll go on in the next few verses of chapter 2 to describe the kind of glory that was present on Mount Sinai when God gave the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses, and there's a tradition in Deuteronomy that there were angels present. There was glory there. But if there's glory there, think of how much glory there is with good news. The world will never be changed by good advice, or God wouldn't have to send his son with good news. It's not a matter of enlightenment and spreading the advice of wisdom the world needs to know. It's about letting the world know that it has a king who's victorious on its behalf. Glory is coming with this king. That is what we listen to. And so Advent reminds us that there's glory at the birth of God's son. And it's uh, good news. The angels say at the birth of Jesus, do not be afraid. For see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of the great King David, a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And we sing, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. So the first attitude of attention is, an attentiveness is to hark. The second is to pine. Pine. Pining is really waiting, but waiting in tension. Maintaining tension. It's kind of an active sort of uh, uh, attentiveness in which we hold these two poles together in attention. And we have to learn to hark before we can learn to pine. But if we don't learn to pine, we will not continue harking. And the reason for that is that there are many things that grab for our attention, not just the good news of Jesus Christ, but also the pain in our lives, our grief. Our grief has a kind of a, a compelling 
uh, nature to it that's so powerful, that seems imminently relevant to our lives, that it, it switches our attention off of that good news immediately onto wherever we're hurting, wherever the world is hurting. And in order to attend to what God is doing, His glory in the world, we've got to be able to hold together the, the glory with the grief. We've got to be able to wait in tension. It's interesting, there's some kind of fascination with angels going on in uh, this Italian community. And you can kind of understand it. Every time the angels show up, things go well. They come with so much authority, right? There's this beauty that's on display. They say what needs to be said. It, it happens, you know, the world changes. And, you know, and I think I can't even get a plumber on Monday morning. So the difference between the glory of the angels and the grief of humanity is dramatic. And then there's Jesus. Jesus' whole life is marked by grief. He's a man of sorrows from the beginning to its end, and they kill him. Remind me again why we're listening to Jesus and not to the angels, if we want glory in our lives. And so the writer presents to them a little Bible study. He says, let me turn you back to Psalm 8. And he quotes Psalm 8 right here in the second section. I'm pining. He says, you know, the design that God has for human beings, for human beings more than for angels, is glory. That's your destiny. Uh, David had celebrated that in, in this psalm when he looks at God's creation intention back before uh, the fall in Genesis chapter 1. He says, what is man that thou hast considered him uh, with such regard, that you have crowned him with glory and honor? Who are we? And yet... The writer says, that is your destiny, glory. But he uses the Greek translation of this psalm, which um, has an emphasis on temporality. In verse 7, it says, you have made them, and I invite you to follow along in Hebrews uh, uh, chapter 2 as I, as I go through this. Hebrews chapter 7 says, you made them for a little while lower than the angels. Notice that. He says, yes, we live in grief, unlike the angels, and yet we do for but a little while. He repeats this phrase as he begins to develop his argument in verse 9. But we do see Jesus himself, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. This immediately invites us to wait. To wait. What you see now is not what you'll see at the end of time. Can you wait? Can you hold together the tension between glory and grief? Waiting is an active discipline. If we hold just onto our grief, we will dissolve into despair. We will pine away into apathy. We may choose to be comforted by religion, but we'll choose a form of religion that has kind of the lowest common denominator of expectation. I don't really think glory will come of anything. On the other hand, if we choose only to hold on to glory, and leave our grief behind, what happens then? Then we have a kind of a vision of the ideal, the way that the world is supposed to be. And we ever find ourselves perennially frustrated because God has not given us the capacity to realize that ideal. It's just not in the power of our hands. There's a story told of uh, rescuers who find a man who's been stranded on a deserted island. And they show up, and there are three grass huts on the island. And he, this guy's giving them a tour, and they say, well, 
tell us about these huts. He says, well, the first one, this is where I, I lived. And they said, well, what's the second one? He said, well, that's where I um, went to church, I, church, and it's where I'd worship. And they said, well, what's the third one? And he said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> You're never going to find the perfect church. You're never going to find the perfect relationship. You're never going to find the perfect job. Society will perennially disappoint you. Your friends will let you down. And if we must insist on the ideal in all of those places, we will live with frustration, discouragement, and be paralyzed. And so we must pine. To pay attention, we need to pine. We need to wait in tension. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. That's why later on in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame, faith hall of fame, the great saints of the Old Testament, one after another, the writer gives them as an example of those who held on to their hope, even though they never saw the promise realized in their lives. They were people who knew how to wait, to pine. Hold your hardship together with your hope and wait. Advent teaches us to pine. Lauren Winter, Winter um, makes this point in an essay that she writes uh, that when we wait, when we pine, we also meet a God who pines with us. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, The Lord waits that he may be gracious unto you. The Lord is waiting with you, for you. To which the 19th century British minister adds, uh, God's waiting and man's. How bold and beautiful that he and we should be represented as sharing the same attitude in the midst of your grief and glory as you hold them together. God is with you. O holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. We hark, we pine, and the final way in which this writer urges us to pay attention is to behold. Find it in the third section of the text. To behold is really just to see, but I think it's to look with wonder, to look with astonishment, to see what is coming in the future that cannot possibly be, and to be amazed. To pine, uh, we must behold. Otherwise, we will lose heart. Beholding is what allows us to hang on as we wait. The writer is very honest in verse 8 here, where he says, uh, As it is, we do not yet see things, everything, in subjection to humans. That is to say, yeah, there's a lot of glory we don't see on earth and in our lives. And yet, he goes on to say, we do see Jesus. We do behold Jesus. This writer in Hebrews chapter 12 will say again, fix your eyes on Jesus. Where you don't see glory, you see all the glory in the face of Jesus Christ that you will ever need to see. Behold him. He is your glory. I said, well, exactly what does it mean to behold Jesus? Because He's not walking around anymore. I've never seen him. And actually, the uh, 
recipients of this letter had not seen Jesus either. In fact, neither had the writer. He makes it clear that they have all received their faith uh, secondhand. Our faith is secondhand. It's been passed on to us. Jesus is exalted right now at the right hand of the Father. He is in glory, and we don't see him there. What does it mean to behold? Well, two things, and we see them both in verse 10. We see them in what Jesus does. To behold Jesus is to wonder at what he does. And secondly, we see what he does in our lives. To behold Jesus is to be attentive to his glory in our lives. What does he do? Verse 10, there's a a title that's given to Jesus. It's the word pioneer. In bringing many children to glory, God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That word pioneer is used four times in the New Testament, two times in the book of Hebrews. The second time is in relationship to beholding, just like I said, where he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. This word is related to the word for leading. It could be translated leader. But uh, William Lane, who's a, uh, who was a professor of New Testament at SPU, a local boy who's now in glory himself, made a convincing argument that the word should be translated champion. Behold Jesus, your champion. Now, what, it, what, is, it, what is a champion? Well, in the Bronze Age... When two armies came together, sometimes some of the wiser generals said, why submit ourselves to carnage and bloodshed and the cost of an open battle? Let us stand back, two armies. Let each uh, commander appoint a champion for a contest of champions. And these two warriors will battle for the victory, and then it will be done. They will resolve it completely for us. They will be vicars, representatives of the whole army. Whichever individual wins, the whole group wins. And so the champions would go out, and you want to talk about prayer. These men on the sidelines praying and rooting for their representative as the dust flies in mortal contest. And if your champion dies, you will be enslaved. But if your champion wins, you are free and you win. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, behold, Jesus. Notice that by grace, he has tasted death for in behalf of everyone. And then down here in verse 14, he says, so that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Behold your champion. He goes out to battle Jesus Christ. How does he defeat the power of death? He removes its cause. Death comes into this world when human beings sin. The wages of sin is death. Someone must die. Jesus Christ goes to the cross to absorb that condemnation upon himself. He does not deserve it, but he takes it as a champion, a representative for all of us. So that God can look at us and say, I no longer have any hint of condemnation when I view my people. That's what he does. The second thing we see in in verse 10 is the effect it has on our lives. Notice this. It was fitting that God, for whom, through whom all things exist, 
in bringing many children to glory. Jesus, our champion, he brings many children to glory. And you go, I don't remember that story. Did Jesus have kids? You know, Dan Brown aside? No. Jesus had no children. The translation here is, is uh, just gender inclusive, but it says in Greek, bringing many sons to glory. And the scriptures are emphatic. Jesus is the one and only son of God. And yet, he has a way of looking at you and me so that we become his brothers, sharing in flesh and blood. He does with us. He takes on our nature. Listen to uh, C.S. Lewis. He writes a great essay called The Weight of Glory. I want to read you an extended section. He wrestles with what does glory mean in our lives? Glory suggests two ideas to me, of which one seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? But when I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame or good report. But not fame conferred by our fellow creatures. Fame with God. Approval, or I might say, appreciation by God. It is written, Lewis continues, that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God to please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Jesus hides his glory because ours is hidden. He enters into our shame so that we can enter into his glory, so that we now can stand before the Father. And he says, because of my son Jesus, I approve of you. And Lewis says, more than that, you give me pleasure. You increase my joy. You make God happy, he argues. Advent teaches us to behold the one born to mark our lives with glory. Come, all ye faithful. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Pay greater attention to what you have heard so that you do not drift away from it. If you find yourself this Advent wondering, what is that one thing for me? Pay attention. Hark. Pine. Behold. These may be new disciplines to you. If they are, be encouraged. The season of Advent is the beginning of the Christian calendar. And we revisit it every year to remind ourselves that it is never too late to begin all over again. If these are not 
new disciplines for you. Be encouraged again, because we are called to take them up again and again and again. These are not things that we check in a box and say we've done them and they're completed. These are things that get us through every single day. And Advent is a telling of the beginning of the Christian story, which goes through the whole calendar. The reason we have a liturgical calendar, which we tell the story of Jesus and the church every year, is so that we can learn to recognize that story, the story of God's glory in our own lives. Let's pray. God, we close our eyes to recognize there's nothing visible to us that suggests glory. And yet with the eyes of faith, we behold the face of Jesus Christ, our champion. We fall before him in gratitude and joy that he has come to us, for us. And that as surely as he sits resurrected and exalted on the right hand of the Father, so we also sit in your love. Help us to pay attention. Help us to get past the distractedness of our lives. To see in the midst of all the changes, the one thing that is faithful and true, your gift of life for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.